The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 36 and verse 26, the 26th verse in the 36th chapter of the book of the prophet Ezekiel. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. That is surely one of the most glorious statements found anywhere in the scripture. Listen to it again. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Now, I'm calling attention to this great passage here in this chapter, beginning at verse 16 and going to the end, because it is such a wonderful exposition of the Christian message, the Christian gospel of salvation. I've reminded you frequently of the setting, the context, so I'm not going to do that this evening. It's a passage that can be easily understood. It is at one and the same time the message of God to the children of Israel in their captivity in Babylon, but it's a foreshadowing also of the gospel of the New Testament. And I'm calling attention to it because more and more it seems to me that the trouble with so many is that they've never really understood the terms of the gospel. It's this fatal tendency with which we all seem to come into this life and into this world as the result of sin, the tendency to assume that we know what the Christian message is, that we know what it is to be a Christian. And then when we truly become Christians, we are amazed at the way in which we've been so blind and ignorant. And therefore it is the great business of preaching to unfold this and to expound it. And all we have to do is, is to take the scriptures because uh, the, the scriptures are constantly doing this. And here I say it is done in a particularly clear manner. Here is the problem, if you like. How can we ever get back to God and to that place in which God can bless us? That's the need of men. It was the one need of the children of Israel. Away from God in a strange country. And the one thing was, how could they get back? How could they get into that position where God again could smile upon them and bless them? Well, here is the great announcement. God makes the announcement and he says, I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, etc. Now then, the first great principle is that it is all of God. This isn't a human philosophy. 
This isn't men seeking for God or seeking a way of escape and at last finding it. No, it's an announcement coming from God. It's all of God. And the second thing which we must never lose sight of is this. The order in which these things are put. That can never be emphasized too much. The first thing, as we saw last Sunday night, the first thing that is absolutely essential to us is that our sins should be forgiven, that we should be reconciled to God, that our transgressions and our iniquities should be blotted out. Now, it's no use going further unless we are clear about that. Men's first need is to be forgiven. Of course, we don't like that. We don't like the doctrine of sin. We don't like the doctrine of the atonement. It all sounds, as we say, uh, the natural men say, so legalistic. We don't like this idea of the wrath of God and the need of a sacrifice. <coughs> the whole world of men rebels against that. Ah, oh, they say we want help from God. But there is no help coming to anybody from God until you're in the right relationship to God. And there is only one way to be rightly related to God. And that is to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all ready to be declared in due time. Now, that's absolutely basic and fundamental. And, my friend, I'm emphasizing it for this reason. That what I'm now going to say this evening will have no application at all to you and cannot, unless you're agreed about that first point. The first need is to be sprinkled with clean water, is to be cleansed from all our filthiness and from all our idols. In other words, if we haven't seen ourselves as vile and foul and hopeless sinners in the sight of God, so desperate that nothing but the death of God's Son on the cross could possibly save us, I say it with reverence, God has nothing to say to us. That is the beginning. We start with repentance and an utter, absolute dependence upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God and His perfect work. There is no relationship between God and men except in and through Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Every other supposed relationship is a false one. It's a make-belief. It is spurious. It's a lie. And I say so on the authority of this word. If it were possible for men to know God and to be reconciled to him and to be blessed by him apart from Jesus Christ. Well then I say that the death of Christ on the cross is the most colossal waste that the world has ever seen. It should never have happened. It should never have been allowed. But it is a lie I say. There is only one way to God. And it is in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It is His blood alone. 
that can cleanse us from all sin and all unrighteousness. Nothing else can. Thank God this can. That comes first. But it doesn't stop at that. He goes on. A new heart also. Something further. Something additional. And therefore we come on uh, to consider that this evening. Now, you cannot but marvel and wonder at the perfection of this plan of salvation as it's unfolded to us. Why isn't it enough that we should be forgiven by the blood of Christ? Well, isn't this the obvious answer? If salvation stopped at that, we'd always be back in the same old position that we were in before. If God, you see, had just taken the children of Israel and forgiven them and brought them back into Canaan and left them as they were, well, they'd do it all over again. They'd go back into idolatry and they'd be back in trouble. That isn't God's way of salvation. When God sets out to save men, he does a thorough work. So he doesn't merely leave it at the beginning, the first step, forgiveness only. And reconciliation. No, having done that, he then comes on to this second thing. And what is this? Well, we can put it in this form. God now proceeds to deal with the thing that originally sent us wrong. There are the children of Israel in the captivity of Babylon, sitting by the waters, why did they ever get there? Ah, because they rebelled against God. Very well, something needs to be done to these men to prevent their doing that again. God isn't going to take all this trouble to bring them back if it's simply going backwards and forwards. No, no, he's going to establish it. So something further is needed. He is going to put right that thing which is wrong in human nature, which cuts it off from the blessing of God and from the enjoyment of his life. And that's the very thing with which we deal in this 26th verse. It's the need of a new heart. The need of a new spirit. Now, what does this term heart mean? Well, as you know in scripture, the term heart is a term that must be watched and handled carefully always. Generally, as here, it means the center of a man's personality. We tend to confine the word heart, don't we, to the emotions and to the sensibilities. But in scripture, the word heart has a wider connotation than that. It's more inclusive than that. It really means that most central part of man's being and personality, and especially, therefore, his mind. His mind which is, after all, the biggest and the greatest thing in men. What differentiates men, finally, from the animal is the mind. This is a part of God's image in men. Men's mind and understanding. That's the real center. The mind, if you like, and the will. So the heart stands for that. Then what does it mean by spirit? Well, spirit means, of course, attitude. It also means motive. It means our reason for doing things, the, the, the kind of force that leads us to our decisions, our motives, our motivation. Very well, here is an announcement. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. 
And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. Now, here, we're again at one of those other vital points which determines our whole outlook. We cannot handle anything more important and more serious than this. There are only two main views confronting mankind tonight with regard to man himself and his needs. Now, we're all agreed, I take it, that we're in trouble and that there's something wrong with the world. I imagine that everybody would grant that, even the most flippant and superficial. But the great question is, what is the matter? What is man's trouble? What is his need? What needs to be done in order that we can be put right and that we can enjoy life under the hand and under the blessing of God? Now then, it's over this very doctrine in this 26th verse that the great divide comes. There are two views. The popular view, the non-biblical view, is this. It says that man is fundamentally and essentially good. but that his real trouble is due to the fact that he doesn't live up to what he is and what he knows he ought to be. Now, there is the, uh, is the statement that matters. Man, it says, is fundamentally and in and of himself, essentially, good. Therefore, what he needs in his failure and in his misery is... He needs instruction, he needs teaching, he needs encouragement, he needs help, he needs examples. He's not bad, they say, he's not fundamentally wrong and hopeless. No, no. Man himself, as a being, is essentially right and straight and good. The basis of his life is, as it were, all right. It's in the superstructure he goes wrong. So, you see, all the attention is paid, uh, according to that view, uh, to giving men uh, knowledge and information. I've often dealt with this. I needn't keep you. It's the whole rationale of the non-Christian view of life. It's been the controlling theory for the last hundred years the possibility of improving men. Because that is all it says that man needs, is to be improved. He doesn't need to be changed. He needs to be made better. And of course it can be done. And you go in, you tackle the problem all along the line. Housing, of course. Environment, tremendously important. They say it's impossible for anybody to live a good life in bad circumstances and surroundings. They don't seem ever to have read the histories which show us that there have been glorious saints living in slums. They just take it for granted. They say it can't happen. Bad surroundings make bad people. Good surroundings make good people. Slum clearance. Now, don't misunderstand me. Politically, we all must believe in slum clearance. But the question I'm asking is this. Do we really believe that by putting men in new houses we'll make new people of them? That's the question. But that's the idea, you see. So you take the problem socially, economically, educationally, 
culturally and so on and so forth. And in these various ways, you're going to improve. Man, fundamentally, see, he's all right. There's a good basis here. It's just that the building hasn't always been right. Or there's good life there. It just needs to be drawn out. You look at it in the raw, it's a little bit rough. But you take it in, as it were, and give it better food and groom it well. And then you've got a marvelous animal showing his paces and doing wonderful things. That's the argument. You're familiar with that view. But over and against that, you see, comes the biblical view. And that's the view that's stated so plainly and so clearly in our text this evening. And putting it bluntly, it's this. The biblical view says that man is radically and basically, foundationally, fundamentally wrong. That the trouble with him is not in the superstructure, but in the very foundation itself. That man's trouble is not that he's wrong in certain respects, but that he himself is wrong. That he's wrong in his heart, in the very center of his being, in the very core of his personality. And uh, that, uh, therefore, what he needs above everything else is not instruction and information and example and encouragement or a kind of fillip to his good efforts, but that what he needs is a new nature, is a new heart, is a new spirit. Now, you see, it is, as I've said, a dividing line. It's a complete watershed. You are either in one or the other of these two positions. You can't hold both at the same time. In other words, we are face to face here with this great, central, controlling, biblical doctrine, which sometimes goes by the name of rebirth, or regeneration, or new creation. Those are the terms that are used everywhere in the scriptures. And therefore I say, the whole question before us at this moment is this. Uh, what is my view of men? Is man a creature who is so fallen, so lost, that he can't be improved? Or is he one who can be improved? Is he so hopeless that nothing will suit him but to be born again, to be regenerated, to be fashioned, created anew? You see how obviously vital this whole question is. Well, now then, how can we settle which of the two views is right? Well, we have simply to follow what we are told in the text. What is man's need? Well, here is his need. He's got a stony heart. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. Man is wrong according to the scripture in his heart and in his spirit. And the diagnosis of his heart is that it's a stony heart, which means, of course, a hard heart. It's as hard as a stone, we say, and quite rightly. It's obdurate. Now, you notice that this is something that is taught very frequently in the scriptures. We had an illustration of it in the reading just now, 
out of that third chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, where it's the big point that is made by the author. He says, harden not your hearts. Don't harden your hearts as those children of Israel did in the provocation in the wilderness. You remember how he works it out. Here were these children of Israel that God had brought in a wonderful way out of the bondage and the captivity of Egypt. He is leading them towards the promised land of Canaan. And yet you remember that of that generation that came out of Egypt, practically none of them entered into Canaan with just one or two exceptions. What was the matter? They were all destroyed in the wilderness. They never entered into the promised land. The very people who had been brought out. Why? Well, it was because they hardened their hearts. It was because they became obdurate with respect to God. It was because they were no longer sensitive to God and to God's ways and to God's will. Or take the other way in which he puts it. They had, he says, an evil heart of unbelief. Same thing exactly. An evil heart of unbelief. Or again he puts it like this. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, the teaching is that what sin does is to harden our hearts. To make them irresponsive. To make them impervious to truth. Now, this is clearly something that is of vital concern to us all. The devil comes, you see, and tempts as he did at the very beginning. And what he always does is to try to put something between men and God. Men had been made by God, and there he was in correspondence, listening to God, waiting for his voice, expecting his message day by day. But the devil comes with his suggestion, and its effect is just to put something between men and God, and men's expectancy of, of God, and men's reliance upon God, and to ask questions, so that when God's word comes, there's a query. That's the beginning of hardening, the deceitfulness of sin, which claims that it's out to help us, and out to benefit us, and out to make wonderful people of us. So he tells us, turn away from God, listen to me. And so we become hardened in our hearts as the result of the deceitfulness of sin. Now, this, as I was explaining in showing you the meaning of the word heart, is something that applies chiefly to the mind and to the will. And this is a very profound bit of what we may call biblical psychology here. What it means is this, that men, as the result of sin, is in a condition in which the very truth of God can make no impression upon him. It can't find a place of entry. Now, you remember how our blessed Lord has himself once and forever put this quite perfectly in the parable of the sower. A sower went out to sow, he said, and some fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Why? What happened? Well, of course, the wayside had been so trodden by men that it had become hard. The surface was hard. So as the sower sows the seed, 
It just rests there on the hard surface and the birds see it and they pounce upon it and they take it all away. And it's exactly the same as if the sower had never been sowing at all. Our Lord expands it in these words. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, that's how he interprets that, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. What a perfect exposition of our text this evening. But you notice the terms. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, that's what the hardening leads to. The word comes, but it just means nothing. It doesn't enter. It doesn't find a lodging place. It's like that seed falling onto a pavement or onto the stone. And there it is. If you leave it there a century, it'll be no deeper. It just remains. But the bird seed, the devil comes, snatches the word away. And it's exactly as if such a person had never heard God's word, had never heard the gospel at all. Ah, you remember how the Apostle Paul puts this. He says, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he, for they are spiritually discerned. There's a natural man sitting, you see, and listening to this word of gospel and of life and of salvation. He doesn't receive it. It doesn't enter into him. It doesn't get at his heart. Why? Ah, there's this hardness, this callosity, this obduracy. The word comes and it strikes and bounces back and it's gone. That's how he describes the natural men and how true it is. He's already said this in that second chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians. He says that when the Lord Jesus Christ was in this world, the princes of this world did not know him. For had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And never forget when he says princes there, he doesn't only mean kings and monarchs, he means the great men. He means the mighty philosophers. He means the intellectualists. The men who are truly princes in a natural sense. They did not receive him. They rejected him. They despised him. They never realized who he was. Though he stood in their presence and spoke to them. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Well, if we may expound that again by another statement of the Apostle, there's only one answer. They were dead in trespasses and in sins. Very well. What does all this mean in actual practice? Well, let me put it in this form. The man who's got a hard heart is a man who is dead to everything spiritual. Spiritual things, as the Apostle puts it, just mean nothing at all to him. He's absolutely dead to God. God is there in the heavens in eternity, looking upon the earth. He's made the earth. He controls it. 
He sends the season, spring, summer, autumn, winter. He sends a day of glorious sunshine like this. And these people see nothing at all. They never see God. They don't stop to think at a deep level. They just take it as it comes and curse if it's raining. They don't see God in all the marvel and the glory of it all. They're absolutely dead to God. Now, you see, compare such a man uh, with one of the saints. Read the biography of a saint over against the biography of a man who didn't believe in God and who had a hard heart. And you'll find that the saint's life is a romance because he's in relationship to God. And God does amazing things with him. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. He's alive and alert to God. His whole life is centered upon God. Read about a man like Abraham. Read about Moses. Read about David. Read all these men. And you'll find that their life is centered on God. They're alive and alert, responsive. But this other man is absolutely dead to God doesn't believe in God. Or if he does, he never thinks about him. He lives his life entirely apart from God as if there were no God. God doesn't just touch him at all. There's no imprint, no impress made upon his life at all. He's just dead to God because of his hard heart. But they're not only dead to the being of God. They're dead to the fact of their own soul. They never stop to consider and to realize that they've got such a priceless possession within them. They spend the whole of their time, you see, in thinking of themselves in terms of this life and of this world only. They've never said, even with Longfellow, dust thou art to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. That's true of the body, but it was never true of the soul. There is that within man which is bigger than his body, bigger than his surroundings, bigger than the world. There's that in man that defies everything, and even though you kill his body, it goes on. There is that in man that cries out for and demands an ampler ether, a diviner these men are oblivious of this. They're not aware of it. They're not interested in it. They think only in terms of body, food, drink, clothing, appearance, and so on. Life in this limited little span. And they're never aware of this gigantic thing that is there within them, dead to their own souls. They never meditate upon it. They never think about it. That's because they've got hard hearts. This book called the Bible is always speaking about these things. It's telling men about his own greatness. It's telling him about his own destiny. It's telling him what he was meant to be, what he might be. But it means nothing to them. It bounces back off them. They hear it. Huh? They say, that's a waste of time. I'm not interested in it. Utter boredom. No response. But equally they're dead to their own destiny. Because, you know, it's a sign of spiritual life that a man should be interested in his destiny. The man who's got a hard heart never sits down and says to himself, Where am I going? What happens when I die? What lies beyond? 
You see, that's a spiritual question at once. A man who's concerned about that, he's spiritually alive. The man who's got a hard heart isn't interested in that. He doesn't, he doesn't realize he's not interested in the fact that death is not the end, but that beyond death you face God and the judgment, and there you are made to listen to the promulgation of a sentence which tells you about your eternal destiny. The Bible's full of it. The Bible tells us that God is the judge of the whole earth and that he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath appointed, namely his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But you say that to a man who's got a hard heart and it doesn't touch him. It makes no impression on him at all. What he says, of course, is, oh, I can't be, I'm not to be frightened by that sort of thing. You're a hundred years, my friend, he says, out of date, you know. It's 1956, we know too much to believe that sort of thing now. It just bounces back, it leaves him. Why? Oh, he doesn't realize it, it's because his heart is hard. He's like that stony ground, that, that pathway by the side, and there's no room for it to go in, there's no soil there, there's nothing to receive it. These are some of the consequences of having a stony heart. Oh, but there are others which are more serious and more tragic. Men with stony hearts see nothing in the Lord Jesus Christ. If ever they mention his name, it's only as an expletive, as a curse as an earth, as something foul and vicious and vile. They have never contemplated his surpassing glory. They've never said, Thou art the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star, the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. They don't understand what it was that moved Handel as he composed his Messiah. They don't understand the writers of these hymns who say, Thou, O Christ, art all I want. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast. No, no, Christ. It's because their hearts are hard. You know, there are people who can sit and look at the most pathetic and moving drama that pulls and tugs at your heartstrings and they are left unmoved and untouched. There are people who can listen to the most glorious oratorios and they're bored. There are people who can read the most sublime poetry and see nothing in it. There are people who can stand and look at an amazing sunset and be interested in something that's on the ground. The trouble is, you see, they have no appreciation. They've got nothing within them that responds. Their hearts are not hearts of flesh. They're hearts of stone, and there's no response. Oh, such people, I say, know nothing about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in redemption and all the exceeding riches of his grace and all the wondrous things that are held out to the children of God. They mean nothing to them. The spiritual life as a whole leaves them absolutely dead and untouched. Hardness of heart, stony hearts. 
And of course, their spirit is likewise in the same condition. This means motive or attitude. What's it mean? Well, it means this. You see, not only are they failing to appreciate, they're even antagonistic. Did you notice how Paul puts it? The natural man, he says, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. There's a fact. But why doesn't he? They are foolishness unto him. That's antagonism. The natural mind, says the apostle again in the 8th of Romans and in the 8th verse, the natural mind is enmity against God. Spirit. Motive. It's a hatred of God. And nothing less than that. You see, it doesn't stop at merely a lack of response. There is a positive opposition. A definite antagonism. Oh, let me again put it in one phrase which was used by John in the third chapter of his gospel in the 19th verse. He puts it like this. This is the condemnation. That light is come into the world or has come into the world. Well, why doesn't everybody believe in it and bask in it? This is the condemnation. That light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Spirit. A hatred of it. Why? Well, because that which makes manifest is light. And when the light comes, it exposes the hidden things of darkness. And man doesn't like that. So he hates the light. He says, if that light comes, I shan't be able to go on doing these things. Therefore, put out the light. Like those men in Gadara, you remember. When our blessed Lord had driven the devils out of that poor, possessed, lunatic men. And he was seated and clothed and in his right mind. Instead of thanking him, they besought him to depart out of their coasts. Why? Well, because he'd driven the devils into the swine, and the swine had hurtled themselves to destruction down in the depths of the sea. They said, if this man stays here, he's going to ruin our trade. He's making things impossible. Therefore, get rid of him. Get rid of the light, in order that you may go on enjoying the hidden things of darkness. Man's spirit is wrong as well as his heart. Oh, need I keep you? Isn't it obvious? Is there anything that can be more hopeless than this? Is it just enough to teach such a man? Our Lord himself has said that it isn't. Is there any point in going on sowing seed onto this bypath, this path by the side of the field, where there's no possibility of its going in or producing anything, and where the birds come at once and take it? Why, you're simply wasting seed. Nothing can be done for such a person. Is teaching alone going to do it, I ask? Is appealing alone going to do it? What's the use of appealing to a man who hates God? What's the use of appealing with the greatest tenderness imaginable to a man who regards God and all that belongs to him as foolishness? No, no, it's obvious. The scripture is right, isn't it? What such a man needs is a new heart, a new spirit. Do what you like to him as he is, and you'll never avail anything. You cannot get a crop off a pathway. 
You need new soil. You need a new heart, a new spirit, a new everything. That's the very thing that is promised and offered in this blessed and glorious gospel. A change of heart, a change of spirit. Oh, let me use these grand New Testament terms again. The rebirth. The thing that our Lord said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Regeneration. New life. The dead receive a new heart, a new creation. Had you realized that this is the gospel? The gospel of Jesus Christ is a miracle. It doesn't improve men, it makes them anew. It literally gives us a new heart and a new spirit. Absolutely new. Need I emphasize therefore what is emphasized here so plainly in the text and in all the context? This is God's action. No one can make a Christian but God. A man can't make himself a new heart. A man can't change his own spirit. Listen, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? As easily can a man give himself a new heart. Have you ever tried to give yourself a new heart? Have you ever tried to be interested in the Bible? Have you ever tried to make yourself a new man? Well, if you have, you know you can't do it. It can't be done. The Ethiopian cannot change his skin or the leopard his spots. But thank God we are not asked to. It's God who says, a new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away from you the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. It's God alone who can work miracles. No man can work a miracle. But God does work the miracle. It's the whole miracle of redemption. What's it mean? Well, here it is in these phrases. A heart of flesh. And what does this mean? Well, it's the exact opposite of all I've been saying. It means this. And had you realized this? God in Christ offers to put a new principle into your life. Something that wasn't there before. Something that makes you, therefore, entirely different. What is this new principle of life? Well, essentially it's this. Again, you start with the mind. It's a new ability to see and to apprehend truth. Oh, I thank God for the fact that there are dozens of not to say hundreds of people in this congregation at this moment who know exactly what I'm saying and who many of them have said this very thing to me as I've said it myself. This is how this new man speaks. He says, you know, what I cannot understand is this. How could I have missed it? How could I have failed to see it? It's so plain. It's there everywhere. Or sometimes perhaps they put it like this still more plainly. Having been converted and having had this new heart with this new principle of life, 
and this new understanding. They are very anxious, of course, that those who are nearest and dearest to them should have it also. And sometimes they become a little bit impatient with them. And I just have to plead with them to be patient. But they say they can't see it and it's so obvious. And I say to them, yes, you were like that a short while ago. But I'm simply emphasizing, you see, what a miracle it is. That this new principle makes the thing so plain and clear that one simply cannot believe after a while that one ever was blind to it. And yet we were, we were all like that by nature. But when the new principle is given, when the new heart is put in, why we begin to see things. The Bible is so plain, it's such an interesting book, it's an exciting book, it's a romantic book, and here is truth stepping out to meet us, as it were. This marvelous truth about God and creation and man and what he is, and I myself and my soul, my sinfulness, Christ, as my Redeemer, my new relationship to him, and so on. So that the testimony of every man who has received the new heart is this. Whereas I was once blind, now I see. He's in a new world. He feels he's a new man altogether. I live in it, yet not I, he says. He's got an entirely new outlook and understanding. The things he lived for, he sees now are a waste of time. And the things he dismissed as foolishness and boredom are the only things that matter to him. He's got a new mind. Oh, listen to Paul again. The princes of this world, he says, you remember, knew him not, for had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But God hath revealed these things unto us by his Spirit. The Spirit which searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. God, he goes on to say, hath not given us the Spirit that is of the world, but the Spirit that is of God, that we may know the things that are freely given to us of God. We come to this knowledge, we have the mind of Christ. And of course, in the same way, the Spirit is changed. This man is no longer antagonistic to God. What he desires above everything else is God. I testify to that in this pulpit. It's nothing in me, but I say this to the glory of God, and in order to be honest, there is nothing in heaven or earth, on sea, or under the sea, that I desire beyond God. To know God is my supreme delight, my chiefest desire. I was not ever thus nor prayed that thou shouldst lead me on. But now there's been a change, there's a difference. I love to choose and see my path, but now lead thou me on. A new spirit, a delight in these things, the desire for God, the living God, 
As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my heart after thee, O God. That's how the new man speaks. He loves God. He desires to know God's will. He desires to do God's will. He desires to glorify God. That is what happens when a man is given the new heart and the new spirit. You see, it's the exact opposite of the other picture that I've been painting. Now, my friends, as I close, let me sum it all up by putting it like this. What a glorious gospel this is. Because this is God's work, it is possible to all. And that is what, if I may so put it, makes preaching the gospel such a romance. I can stand in this pulpit and know that there is no one who is so hopeless, but that God can change him. I can't. No man can. Education and culture cannot. They've all failed so often. But I know that if a man who comes in here may have touched bottom. And his heart may be as hard and as obdurate as a stone. God can melt it and take it out of him and put in a heart of flesh. The vilest blasphemer and rejecter of God and of Christ has as much a chance of becoming a saint as the most respectable person in the land. Thank God. Because it's God's work. Because it's a miracle. Because it's the power of God into salvation. He is able to do it. He has been doing it down the running centuries. He's still doing it. He'll go on doing it until the number of the elect is complete. So my final question is this. Has it happened to you? Come, let's be quite frank and personal. Have I been boring you this evening? Do you wish I'd finished long ago? It includes that, you know. Two to three hours film isn't too long, is it? It's a shame if a boxing match ends in ten minutes. Is this too long? Talking about you and your soul, your eternal destiny, God, the everlasting, glorious, ineffable God, the Lord Jesus Christ and his abasement, his death upon the cross. Does it mean anything to you or does it just strike your heart as, it's, as the seed struck the wayside? Does it just fall on you and bounce off and you don't want to hear it again and you see nothing in it? Is it that? Well, my dear friend, I trust it's plain and clear. If it is that, it's because your heart is hard. It's stony. It's like that wayside that never bears a crop. It's so unlike that field over there with a glorious crop, 30-fold, 60-fold, some 100-fold. 
Oh, I ask you, is your heart hard or have you got this heart of flesh? What's your spirit like? Is it antagonistic to God and these things? Or have you got a hunger for them, a thirst for them, a desire to know them? You'll never have a more important question put to you than that. Because you remember how that man put it in the third of Hebrews. The people with a hard heart, the evil heart of unbelief, the people who didn't receive the word mixed with faith, perished in the wilderness, and their carcasses were seen. And terrible though it is to meditate and to contemplate, whoever dies with a hard and a stony heart, There's nothing to look forward to but perishing. God forbid that a gospel which offers a new heart and a new spirit, a heart of flesh, sensitive and alive to God and all his gifts and glories, God forbid, I say, that anybody in this congregation at this moment should be unaffected by it. I tremble as I think of the thing. But I'm afraid that to such a soul in an eternity of torment, even my feeble words will come back as condemnation. But God forbid it, I say. And therefore, if you feel that you're hard and that your spirit is obdurate, oh, let me plead with you. Cry out unto him and say with David, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. If you want, he'll give it you. Don't be made to feel hopeless by Satan. Don't say, I'm hopeless, I feel nothing. The question is, do you want to? If you do, I say there's everlasting hope. Cry out unto him, and he will take out of you the heart of stone and put in in its place a heart of flesh, and you will be a new man in Christ Jesus. Amen.